when you're on a bike in the elements, you feel everything. You feel the wind, you hear the noise, you hear the crack of the road as you ride over pebbles. and You see the world at a more human pace. Tim Pickett is the toughest cyclist I know. He can ride consecutive 100 milers for weeks at a time, and that's on a fully loaded touring bike. I have a good idea when I take on these challenges about what to expect, but I choose not to look at it because it's the discovering about what's around the corner. It could either be good or it could be difficult. But when you're in that discovery mode, it's exciting. Tim's tackled some beastie rides and recently cycled the Pan American Highway, famed as being the longest road in the world. It was a journey of over 15,000 miles, which took Tim nearly six months, all by himself on his bike. Many people his age might consider a less strenuous form of transport. Just because you're in your 50s doesn't mean you can't do it. I think it's more of a reason to do it, actually. Tim's talents of riding big miles are even more impressive when you learn that he only discovered cycling in his 40s, something he actually credits to saving his life. That's because Tim is a survivor of child abuse. And throughout his life, Tim has battled with suicidal depression, PTSD, and has never valued or appreciated his own self-worth. He even admits that he wanted his latest ride to end him. It was just a one-way journey. It was the start of a new life to push myself and end it, just finish doing something massive. This conversation is not just a story of Tim's epic ride with many tales from the road, but it's also a story of survival, of processing trauma through physical exertion, and ultimately how to find self-respect when you've spent so much of your life thinking you don't have any worth at all. Having people say, well, you're inspiring what you're doing, it's great. That meant something and it sort of empowers you. It empowers you with yourself about who you are and what you mean to others. Although you might have very little self-respect for yourself, other people respect what you do. That's all coming up on episode three of Great British Adventures. I think people, when they hear about your story, will wonder, like, why is someone in their 50s? Uh, or shouldn't someone in their 50s be taking an RV around the world, not not cycling around it on their bike? Yeah, that they're perfectly entitled to do that, but I prefer to cycle. Keeps me fit, keeps me focused, and it's more of an adventure. There must be something about being out in the environment you're traveling through. Freedom. If you're in an RV or a vehicle of any kind, it's air-conditioned, it's warm, you know, or cold, however you want it. Um, when you're on a bike in the elements, you feel everything. You feel the wind, you hear the noise, you hear the crack of the road as you ride over pebbles and you experience all the elements. And when it rains, you get wet. And when it's hot, you sunburn, you know. So it's more real and it makes you feel more alive. Well, you've come here to talk about your one of your big cycling adventures you've just finished. Yeah. And I imagine from the experience I've had from much shorter journeys that there's so much to decompress from from being out on the road, from being out in the elements, from exerting yourself physically every day, yeah. continuously. You've done an adventure that took months. Mm. How is your mind now that you've finished in the last month or so? It feels surreal in that, yeah, I mean, I finished on the January the 14th was my last day on the bike. And since then, it's re-engaging with lots of people in crowded places. Uh, I mean, I've been on my own, isolated, doing everything for myself. And I'm just going back through stuff, looking at photographs and looking at what I've written and the people I've met and remembering things. You know, I go to sleep at night and all of a sudden it's a bit like a light bulb. Oh, yeah, I went there. I met this person. Oh, I saw this. Or I climbed that mountain. So it's still decompressing with all of that. And the physicality of what I took on, I underestimated how long it would take me to recoup. I thought, well, you know, I've finished that. I'll have a couple of days off. I'll go ride again. But when you make the decision to stop, 
your body starts to go, I need to rest now. So it's taken a few weeks and I'm just starting to get back into riding my 40 or 50 milers and um, coming back to some sort of, I suppose, societal normality, which isn't in some ways normal for me at the moment. Yeah. What you've done is, 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 is very extreme as well. So you, I think many people can relate to pushing their body beyond and out, out further out their comfort zone. Let's say they, they're training for a marathon, they run the marathon. Yeah. The next day, they don't want to run. No. The next day after that, they don't want to run. They don't want to think about running for the next week. Yeah. You know, they've done their bits. And then slowly, when, if, they, if they want to, they'll get back out gently, yeah. running a little bit, a little bit more. Seeing where their body is, maybe it's not right time and they'll come back and rest again. What you've done is not just physicality on, on your body, but also on your mind as well. Yeah. And it was so extreme that I imagine it's not just a case of just taking a week off or two. It's, this is months of, of decompression. It is. The longer you're out there, the longer you need to, to un- re- unwind and find your feet. I think if I go back to the very start of the ride, I always thought that, August the 1st, the day I started riding, wasn't just about a ride, it was the start of a new life. And the objective to finish the ride was about self-respect. So for me, it wasn't just about the endurance or the mental, well, there was the endurance, but the mental aspect was to say, this is what you can do, you know, and prove your self-worth. And mentally, that is incredibly tough because it's not just the getting up every day day after day after day it's telling yourself you're worth it to actually get up and do it so the mental side of things i think was probably more tough for me than the physicality um i think as you go on i always think i mean i've done long rides before but nothing like this nothing on this scale and i always say that the first week is the hardest Mm. because once you've got past the first week then you can get into a routine you know you've got your week on the bike you sort of know what you do. You know, you look at the bike, you look at how you even how down to the detail about which sock you put on first. You know, do you put your left on first or your right on first? And you get into a pattern. Then it's, it's sort of organized chaos in some ways. Um, so that becomes your norm, you know, getting up every day and getting on. But it's the mental fatigue that's really tough. Conquering the things that tell you what you shouldn't be doing or what you don't think you can do then you have to sort of put that in a box and say, right, I've got a job to do today. And, um, and once you start riding, once you get in for a few miles, those little bits of demons will sort of hide away for a while. And, and your experience on previous tours, do you think that kind of helped? Yeah, definitely. The, what's, so the, the, you were talking about this earlier to me. You've, you've crossed Route 66, yeah. which took you... Three weeks. Three weeks, which is roughly how, much, how many miles a day? Uh, just over 100 miles a day. That was back in 2013? Yep. Since then, did you do anything else? Yep. I've been across Australia, which was Perth to Sydney. So that was um, across the Nullarbor Plain. Uh, so that was three weeks from Perth to Bondi Beach. And that was interesting. That was meeting a whole array of people and wildlife. Dingoes, kangaroos, camels, emus, road trains. Um, but again, that, that really sort of taught me a few bits about survival and um not fearing too much about the snakes and the spiders. Because that's what we hear about over here, is the yeah. dangers. The biggest danger in Australia were the road trains. And the advice I was given is if you see a road train in front of you coming towards you, get off the road. Because the traffic behind you will be swerving onto the hard shoulder to avoid the road train. 
best advice I ever had because they need space and they're hurtling along at 60, 70 miles an hour on just single carriageways. And you're just a speck on their windscreen. They wouldn't even know they'd hit you. So out of respect for the truck drivers, you get off the road because they've got a job to do. So respect works two ways. Sure. Yeah, that's important on the roads, I suppose, when you're on a bike. Particularly, yeah. And so a three-week journey. Yeah. Had you gone any longer? Yeah. The 2019, I went from Prudhoe Bay down to Mexico City. So this is a similar journey to what you've just undertaken, but yeah. a, sh- a shortened version. Yes, yes. Um, I wanted to see how hard I could push myself in 2019. I'd always wanted to do the Pan America, I think, really, but I've just never had the time to do it. And in 2019, I benchmarked myself against the unsupported world record holder, who is a man called Jonas Dykeman. And in 2018, he went and set a record for the Pan America, which was 97 and a half days mm-hmm. from Prudhoe Bay to Ushuaia. This was 23,000 kilometers. Yep. And he the top av- of North America to the very bottom of South. That's right. That's right. And he averaged 140 miles a day. And I just went from Prudhoe Bay to Mexico City, which was five and a half thousand miles. And I averaged 126 miles a day, which was tough. I couldn't push any harder than that. So what was your purpose? Were you, were you trying to, to replicate what he could do to see where... I just wanted to see how hard, how hard I could go, how fast I could go. So where your limits were. Where my limits were, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And unsupported. You know, no vans following me, no, no one along the way, nothing. Just me and the bike and the road and seeing how hard I could go. So how long did that journey take in time? That was... Uh, I think about 45 days, maybe. Okay. So just over six weeks. Mm. Going twice as long as probably the tools that you're used to doing. Yeah. Yeah, it was twice as far. But I found as I was going, I could get faster and faster and faster. Was your body just clicking into place? Yeah. And at the end of that, because my mindset was to finish in Mexico City, you know, that was the point of when the body said, right, you know, enough's enough. And and it's funny, the, the ride into Mexico... Because the last day, I always try and do a short ride in to make sure that I enjoy the last day. So it was only 80 miles. It wasn't too far. And that's when the bike started to get tired. I had a very slow puncture. So it was basically saying, take your time. So I didn't change didn't, didn't change the puncture. Just kept stopping every so often, pumping it up, mm-hmm. getting it to the right pressure. And then the chain started falling off. And, and what happened was I met uh, probably about four or five cyclists. There was There was a dad and his brother and a friend and one of the a son and they cycled with me for about 15 miles and it was just nice to have that camaraderie and friendship yeah and that was a really meaningful day you know so it made the end you know it was fate it's fate that my bike was going wrong or getting tired there is something i think to be said about when you reach the end of your a journey that your body starts to kind of realize what's going on your mind is, is, yep. is knowing what's going on so you've been able to hold yourself together for so long mm. But as soon as you know that the finish line is in sight, it's almost like it gives your body permission to say, okay, I can stop now. Yep. And it might be that, that last day when it's actually like, okay, I'll get you to the end, but that's all I'm giving you and there'll be nothing more. Absolutely. And, I, and it's almost like the bike sometimes is in sync with, with you, which has happened to me on the, the last, when I toured across France, came into the, the long promenade into Nice yes. and the, the gearing on the, my back derailleur broke stuck me in a hard gear and it was and it, i had no more hills left so it was like okay i've done my job now i'm going to make it hard work for you to finish absolutely right but it's how you it's how you deal with things like that you've got two choices you either stop and give up or you just say i'll work with what i've got 
and you work with what you got and you carry on because otherwise you wouldn't you wouldn't fulfill what you set out to do and my body gave it was i mean i was still buzzing with adrenaline you know i got in got my photograph done with because i needed a photograph i was on my own there was no one there at the end um so just me and my bike and that was good and then i went and found a beer because i never drink when i'm training never touch alcohol i just i'm focused but at the end of it i always have two beers mm-hmm. this time i had three but generally have two um i always have one for me and one for my late brother you know and so he's always there yeah and we That's do that a great way to finish and got to mexico city airport six hours before I needed to because i just want to feel as i was getting back now and I was first in the line for the checkout or check-in, sorry. And two people behind me came up and they were early 70s, Pat and Carlos. And um, I fainted. And that was the day, that was the time my body gave up. Just ready to get back. Wow. And Pat went into rescue mode, said, Carlos, go get the Mars bars and the coffee and I'll look after them. And they became friends ever You'd since. You'd never met these people? Never met them before. And I stayed with them on this, this latest journey. Um, I grew up in Patrum in Garden Avenue and Pat lived about half a mile away when she was a young girl up the road and I meet her 40 or 50 years later from where she grew up and uh, she saved me at the Mexico airport crazy the world is a small place right absolutely and um, they become great friends they're now Pat and Carlos are now my big brother and big sister <laughs> that's fantastic and did you return to these on, on, on I the stayed with them for three days yeah. and they're coming over later this year and I'm taking them away for a few days to say thank you. It all comes full circle. It does. And it's just the kindness of strangers sometimes. It's one you it couldn't, you can't make it up. Could not make it up. And the kindness was fantastic. You talked about how you, in, in 2019, you wanted to push yourself to the limits and see how far you could go. Why did you choose to really push yourself on, on, a, on a long bike ride on your own? What was the deeper purpose behind that? I think being unsupported, you've only got one person to rely on, and that's yourself. If you're in the middle of a desert and something goes wrong, who's going to help you? And I was trying to prove to myself resilience. Um, And this stems back a long time to historical events in my life that um, that sort of left me feeling on my own a lot. And when I've done things with other people, you know, they've they've sort of generally not understood why why I push so hard. And it's been unfair on them to sort of expect that they can keep up or do what I can do. Because I've always had to push myself and to sort of say that I'm good at what I can do, you know, but I've never really accepted it. I've never really accepted that I can ride day after day after day. And I really only discovered that when my younger brother died, because he died of pancreatic cancer. And when we were younger, he witnessed the abuse that I went through. He witnessed me being raped by a man and he was 11 years old. And I think that, not think, it did. We never spoke about it. How old were you? I was 13. And we were always very close, but we never spoke about it. And I think the silence is is a killer. And when he died, it was a very significant part. I think there was a changing point for me, really. Because the that was the start. I was 45 and that was the start of my big, big rides. So d- decades had passed. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I've, I've ridden the South Downs Way a fair few times to help people. You know, friends, you know, friends, wife got breast cancer. I rode the South Downs Way for breast cancer care. When Mark died, um, I rode for cancer research uh, because it was pancreatic cancer that killed him, which was pretty much, well, with drinking as well. I mean, very, very bright man, very bright man. And he worked for an American company, would fly to Chicago a lot. And 
It's where the Route 66 comes from. And, and I said to him, well, you stay focused. I'll ride across France and about Duez and you're my support vehicle. But he died in February and I cycled in the September. So I, I, I went across France with the kind assistance of my friend Pete. And we did that in about six days from Roscoff to Alpduez on an old mountain bike. And when I got back, first thing I saw on TV was Billy Connolly in his Route 66. And for me, that was Mark saying, well, you've had a little warm up off to Chicago. So two years later, I was off to Chicago. And I think 66 for me was the start of saying, you can really bash these miles out. And then once I finished that, I started getting twitchy again for the next one. And then Australia came up. Then my mind started going to bigger things, um, you know, bigger countries, bigger. And the Pan American Highway is the longest interconnected road in the world. I mean, I, I did think about going around the world, but I thought, no, that's, I want to do the Pan America. Started investigating that. Then I came across Jonas and what he'd done. And I thought, well, how far can I really push myself? But in the ensuing time of all of that, in 2017, I rang the Samaritans and said I'd had enough. And... Uh, and then I reported my crime. I had an interview where it was the first time that I had ever verbalised what had happened to me. And that was really tough. I, I felt I felt as though a weight had been lifted. It must have taken a lot of strength to kind of get to that point. Very difficult. Very Who, difficult. How? What What got you to that point? Was the people around you supporting you? No. No, that was just me tired of being suicidal. I didn't have any help or support in getting there. Because, and that's not a criticism, it's just... If someone suddenly turns around to you and said, you know, this has happened, how do they cope with it as much as you've been coping with it all your life? So I was pretty much all on my own trying to get that organised and dealt with. And uh, it was very cathartic in some ways doing the police interview and verbalising what had happened. That was the first time I'd ever verbalised it. Mark died because he couldn't verbalise it. And at that point I thought, I need to go and do something else. And that was the start of saying I need to do another ride. I need to stay strong, get something done. The court cases take ages of anything of that nature to gather evidence and get witnesses together and stuff. So it's quite a you know a long process. Um, so I thought, well, the bike keeps me sane, so I just got into training. And I didn't feel ashamed this time to raise money for abused children because I'd always hidden behind the fact my brother died of cancer mm-hmm. and raise money for cancer research. But I, I felt a bit more empowered to raise money for abused kids because I was quite prepared to say, you know, this is what's happened to me and my little brother. So the next one was written for cancer research and for the NSPCC. And then subsequent to that, the court case was taken ages and ages. The man was still alive that had committed the crime. He was 82 when he did get convicted, but he was pleading um, dementia, couldn't remember anything. So then he he knew how to play the game. He was a serial paedophile. So a lot of a lot of would have been continuing in your head in your mind all the time and so the bike was a way for you to just detach myself escape from from this for an hour or so at a time just to absolutely just focus on me the road the bike and staying fit and it must have kept your mind more healthy as well it keeps you it keeps you healthy because um you not only do you get fit but you get the endorphin buzz you know you 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 know you're running thinking crikey you know i just i just rode up that hill and for me that's a savior you know cycling is a it saved my life really really saved my life yeah and and that's what i do you know i write i write for my life you know i write to save you know write to be healthy um write to be sane even though some of the rides i do are a little bit extreme but this helps kind of explain why someone would kind of 
give up so much time to spend on their bike because yeah. because you actually owe your bike almost as much. That back. and that and a friend. This is your friend Den. Den, yeah, mad banana. We went through the recession. Didn't have any money working 70, 80 hours, 90 hours a week for 40 pounds a week. And he came upstairs and said, you need a day off. And he said, come out with me and the lads. I said, yeah, what's that? He said, we go mountain biking. And I was hugely cynical about it. And uh, I said, yeah, all right. I said, bunch of pussies. And we started at Newmarket Hill on the A27. And I was there in my jeans, my T-shirt, my, no, my sweatshirt because it's winter. Mm -hmm. I was on a bike that was too small for me because it was his bike. Went out and did 20 miles. And I'd like to say that saved my life, mentally. Yeah. And that's, that's took a long time to find the outlet, but I think that's what's given me confidence throughout my life now. You know, being able to ride and do what I can do. So looking back on that day, what do you really remember about feeling when you first took on that bike? As soon as we left the car park and going up, it was, oh, fuck. <laughs> I was wet and it started raining. I was in jeans that were too tight, but I thought, I'm not going to let this beat me. You know, I've just called them all a bunch of pussies. I can't, I can't not do this. So stuck with it for 20 miles. And uh, and they all they were all very impressed at the end of the 20 miles. I went straight back home and slept for about six hours. I was I was shot, absolutely shot. But I felt good. Nice. And that was the start of it. That was the start of all the rides. And then we go out regularly on a Sunday morning, 7 a.m. up on the up on the downs. And um and it just became it be, it, it, I wouldn't, it wasn't an addiction, it was a necessity. And there was times when I gave up the bike for maybe 12, 12 months. I just couldn't face riding. Um, but as as time went on and I just realised how important it was to stay fit and stay healthy. And it's just become part of who I am now, not what I do. You know, I'm a cyclist. You know, I'm an endurance cyclist. I can ride up hills. I can ride through countries. And it doesn't frighten me. It's great. The excitement of newness of not knowing what's coming. Mm -hmm. And I have a good idea when I take on these challenges about what to expect, but I choose not to look at it because it's the discovering about what's around the corner. It's, it, it could either be good or it could be difficult. But um, when you're in that discovery mode, it's exciting and it and it feeds the happiness, you know, feeds the, wow, you know, look at this. When I was in Canada and I went around one corner, I just, just cycle around a corner. I was, oh, here we go. And then I was just confronted with this huge hill. I've got two choices. I either go up it or I don't. So I just went up it slowly. And you get to the top and you feel fantastic. And you look back and you go, yep, got up that one. On to the next. It's great. So 2021, we met. Um, we crossed paths on our own little bike adventures. I was yep. cycling the West Kernow Way yep. with a friend around Cornwall. The beautiful sunshine in August. Hail. And Inhale, yeah, outside Warren's Bakery. Warren's Bakery, it was before August, it was 2021. It must have been July. Yeah, it, July, it was last year, it would have been July. Yeah, yeah. oh, because of course you started in August. August, yeah. yeah. I was on a training day, I was doing 100 miles that day, and I saw you. Which did you see first, me or the bike with my bike packing gear? The bike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, Tom, it was the bike. <laughs> and your eyes widened telling me about your the journey that you're about to go on. Because most people don't believe it. Or don't, under, don't understand or process what that actually means. Yeah. Because they've not actually physically been there. And no. they just see someone who comes back at the end of a journey and says, oh, well, you did it. Yep. Yeah, I didn't just do it, though. It was... I pushed. Yeah. Yeah, pushed. 
there's a whole book I could write in the middle for that. There's, there is. There's taking on a long bike ride and there's different ways in which you can do it. You know, you can do it at a leisurely pace, which is great. You can spend time in places when you're cycling. I mean, towards the end of the ride I've just done, on the last day I met a, a young couple. I said, where did you leave from? They, said, they were cycling the Pan America Highway. I said, how long have you been on the road? And they said, six years. Because they were stopping and exploring as I went. And that was fantastic. I mean, that was that was a lifestyle, six years. Mm. And when I said to them, I'd been on the road for five months, they, their jaws nearly dropped on the floor and thought, really? And then they said, how old are you? You know, and it's this, it's this, it, it's quite, I find it quite funny, you know, when people sort of think, just because you're in your 50s doesn't mean you can't do it, you know. I think it's more of a reason to do it, actually. But you never knew how, how long it would be. No, I... I think I, initially you told me your... I wanted to push. Your vision, I suppose, because uh, everyone has visions of what their eventual might look mm. like, was be to, to start at the very north coast of America, Prudhoe Bay, cycle through Central America, down yep. South America to the very bottom, to Ushuaia. Yeah. And at the time, you told me that you wanted to also turn around and go back. I was going to go back. I was going to do the return journey. Um, Which no one has ever done before. No one's ever done before. Um, there's a reason for there's that. There's reasons well. for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's tough. <laughs> um, I mean, realistically speaking, could I have done the return journey physically? I think if I'd have had a couple of weeks off in Ushuaia, yeah, I could have done the return journey. Mentally, I was not up to it. Yeah, I found my limit. Mentally, I'd found my limit. I could not do it. What would I, I would have struggled with was, would have, been seeing the carnage again, you know, in the in the day to day, um, and the, when I say carnage, it's about the you know life is cheap in Central America with the dogs and people and things. I could not cope with that. I couldn't. I found my limit on that. And then it became almost going one way became a metaphor for leaving things behind. Don't go back on yourself mm-hmm. because if I'd have, you know, I've what happened to me physically and mentally in my past. That's in the past. And to do a return journey would have been going back over my past because I'd been there before. Yeah. So it became a bit of a metaphor that one way was the right way. But I think the whole purpose of going back originally was to try and kill myself off. You know, there's there's a big element of self-destruct still in me. I thought, right, you know, I can do myself in doing this ride. You know, this is it. I can I can do something, but it will finish me off. And and it sort of got to a point in the ride, I thought, I started to mentally think, yeah, I'm actually all right. You know, I like who I am. You know, I like being able to do this. And if I go back, I won't be able to do it anymore. You know, there'll be no more Timosaurus. You know, he will become extinct. I thought, no, I've got more to give yet. Um, so the mental challenge became mental clarity as well. Where I wanted to go and who I was and what I could do. And pushing myself as hard as I did. And having people say, well, you're inspiring what you're doing. It's great. Or, you know, I'd like to do it. Thank you. Wish you luck. That meant something. And it sort of empowers you. It empowers you with yourself about who you are and what it means, what you mean to others. Although you might have very little self-respect for yourself, other people respect what you do. And that that was very cathartic and very healing. So leading a life by example and, and inspiring is a very, very rewarding thing to do. So I think going one way was the right way. It almost takes yourself to push you further out your comfort zone beyond what you perceive as your limits to find out where you want to be comfortable yeah i thought i'd found my limit because you know i'd suffered from sunstroke food poisoning hypothermia and i got to a point probably 10 days before i thought i'm ready to call this you know i found my limit i think because i was physically tired and mentally tired and um, i'd been hit by a truck i thought this is getting dangerous my luck's running out 
This is at the very end of your journey. Yeah, it? it was about 10 days before. And I remember reading your blogs that you were writing the day before you were excited because the end was in sight. You were calculating how many days that would take you. Yep. It was almost as if you had then you had set in vision the steps that you needed to take yep. to get to the end, which I suppose on a journey which lasts as long as the one that you've done, you try to not think about how you're going to finish because it's yep. just too far beyond sight. Absolutely. But as soon as it becomes within smelling distance, oh. then it, everything starts to click into place. And this happened just the day before you actually then got hit by a truck. Yep. It's almost poetic that your mentality had changed. You were very excited to be finishing and then something just whacks you back into, yep. into shape again. So hang on, no, we've, we've not finished with the adventure yet. Yeah, the nature hadn't finished with me. I think I've been on the road. I'd, I'd been 90 miles of headwind and I got to a gas station and uh, I thought, well, should I camp at the gas station or make a head, head for the other? Got to this gas station. It was it was pretty seedy, tacky and disgusting. I thought, no, I'm going to push an extra sort of 30 miles. And then I left the gas station and got hit by the truck. And it was the day I wasn't wearing my helmet. And I always, always wear my helmet. And this was the one day I didn't. And it hit me three times. It got my forearm. Then it got my the top of my arm, I got the scars on the top here, which where it cut me quite deeply. And um, then it hit me on the head. And I'll tell you what, it bloody hurts. Pulled over at the side of the road. Now, I, at the time, I didn't know I was concussed and a couple pulled up behind me. And thankfully they did. I didn't want to cheat. I wanted to ride. And a voice in my head was saying, get the lift, get the lift. So we put 5150 in the back, got to the next gas station, absolutely exhausted. And I was concussed. And that the voice in my head was telling me, stay safe, get the lift. I did make the extra 30 miles up that I missed, by the way. And um, But you just try and process it and think, I can't be stopped now. But I did actually make a decision to call the ride. I thought, I'm going to ride until Sunday the 15th. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not there, come and get me. But as soon as I made that call to finish, the pressure was off. You were within a thousand miles at this point. Yeah. But you knew that you needed to end it yep. sooner than maybe you knew you could. I think my luck was running out. I think being hit by the truck, made me aware of my own vulnerabilities on the bike. Whether that was me being fatigued and too tired because I was going every day. But I generally felt my luck was running out. And I thought, if I stay with this, I'm, I'm probably not going to make it to the end. So I made the decision to call it. So you had a friend, friend of mine, drop you near the friend, actual very finish. A friend of mine flown in. She took a sabbatical from work and said, I'm not having you finish at the end. We're no one there to meet you. So she, um, she was uh, down at Ushuaia, Jane. And that was great. You know, she was ready to get the hire car and come and get me if I needed it. And when I was under pressure, I rode a lot better and a lot faster, thinking it didn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no, no, I was going to get to the end of the world. But I think me calling it was me accepting my limit. It was actually saying, yeah, I've reached my limit. But the thousand miles was beyond my limit, but I still managed to do it. You know, in a Which weird, is a crazy way to think about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I knew I could do it. You know, I didn't have any pressure on me anymore. It almost gives a great lesson to those who who go out on these adventures to know that sometimes you need to understand that it's not always about doing every single mile along the way to getting to the finish. No. It's so much more than that. The The route that you have planned is purely by means of a guide yep. for you to have Target. a much deeper journey within yourself. It's always allowing yourself to say, I don't have to push myself beyond my limits that are going to actually cause me damage. That's right. And and maybe get myself killed is understanding that I need to have options to know that if I fall into danger, I don't have to That's commit right. to this path Yeah, because it's not about pushing myself to the very end. It's about, it's about living. Yeah. It's about enjoying it. It's about setting, setting yourself a standard that you, you know, you've done. And I went beyond any limit I thought I'd ever have. And that gives me a sense of pride 
and satisfaction that I know I can do it. Um, and it became a journey not about self-destruction, but about self-preservation, you know, and living. And I never used to smile when I thought about living because I always tried to self-destruct. But I think when you've been to places in your head that are very dark and physically that have taken you to places that are very light, it's great. You know, you choose the physicality in the light over the dark. But, um, and it doesn't have to be 100 or 200 miles a day. You know, it can be a mile a day or two miles a day. It's just about getting out there and experiencing life and living life and just being kind. Um, but the journey, the stories, the people I've met, fantastic. Well, let's let's take the audience on on your journey from yeah. the very beginning and let's go through. I'm going to break it down country by country, I think, because it'd be as someone who's not travelled much of the Americas, only um, Canada and USA, it'd be great to hear stories of the people and things you've witnessed along the way. So let's take us back to the very start. First of all, I'm really curious as how does someone pack their life away to go on an adventure so big that it's just beyond just a couple of weeks of holiday, which they might have. You have dogs. Yeah. You have belongings. Yes. You had a car. All got, all got sold. A house. That's all with my son and my wife. I'm, I'm now a bit of a transient migrant now. I live back in Sussex where I was brought up. Mm-hmm. So I'm just staying with a friend now right now until I can... I, I've got really no excuse to buy a car because I can cycle as far as I need to go, really. I sold my van, which I loved, and my car, and that funded the trip. And the whole purpose of doing that was so that I could raise money for the NSPCC. Then it didn't become about sponsorship. It didn't become about, oh, look what we've done for this man. You know, it became solely and purposely about mental health and child abuse and what a survivor can do, not what a victim can do. And I wanted it to be about the ride and not about someone saying, hey, look, we've supported this guy with whatever. So I, I sold everything I had. So you shipped out 51? 51.50, my bike, yeah. yeah. My, with a load of belongings? Yeah, in a box. and uh, Which all had to fit on the bike, I imagine. Everything, just one rucksack, 51.50 in the box with everything. And I flew to Fairbanks in Alaska. Yeah, and you had a few days in Fairbanks. Yeah, I had about I had about five days, I think, in Fairbanks, and uh, just to acclimatise. Went for a few test rides, making sure everything's mm. okay. Went into a um, a cafe, a twenty four hour family run cafe, uh, recognised by one of the girls in there, Lucy. I said, "You've been here before." Mm-hmm. I said, "Yeah." I said, "Were you here in twenty nineteen?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "I'm back again." And she remembered him. It was really, it was really comforting, and it was a, it was a welcome. It was just, you know, welcome back, and it was just nice, and it felt familiar, it felt felt friendly. And on the, um, I think it was the thirtieth, cycled down to the bus station because Prudhoe Bay is five hundred miles north. It's past the Arctic Circle, so five hundred miles north of Fairbanks mm-hmm. on the Dalton Highway. It's a long, long journey. It's a long journey. So yeah, got up to Prudhoe Bay. Felt like going home. It's just brilliant. The, the scenery and the wildlife, the isolation, and um, got prepped the following day. I went up to, because you can't get to the, um, I think it's the Arctic Ocean, because it's an oil field, it's all protected and you need special permission. So you can go on a little bus tour. So there's myself and two others. So we went up. I took the front wheel of 5150 to dip it in. They wouldn't let me take him yep. altogether. So went up, dipped it in the Arctic Ocean. 
It must yeah. have been important for you to see see that ocean as a very much a very starting point of, of the journey. The next time I'd see the ocean would be in Mexico. And I love being by the sea. Mm. Um, so yeah, you know, actually dipping my toes in the water at the top and dipping my toes in the water at Ushuaia were very, very important for me. Uh, top of the world, bottom of the world. And um, so then, yeah, I was up, uh, went back to the motel, got the bike prepped, got ready, couldn't sleep that much that night. So the next day you were off? Next day I was off. Wow. And you start Dead Horse is the town at the top of um, top of the world. App name. Uh, I, how do you process um, what's ahead of you on that when you start? You've got 19,000 uh, miles. You've got a, a distance that's beyond even comprehension. I don't think about it. I don't think about the mileage. Um, I think about where I'm going that day. Um, you know, the end route, yeah, it's great. But I don't take anything for granted. Uh, I don't think you can be saying, yeah, I'm going to get there. You know, I just think I want to get there. What I find really interesting about the start of your journey is, is even you've talked about the experience you've, you have on Route 66, doing this part of this journey anyway, years before mm. and crossing Australia. As a seasoned bike tourer um, who, who kind of is experienced in, in like these long distance journeys, you've very much struggled in the first week. Yeah, I got, uh, even though I'd done this before, I got heat stroke. I was about three days in. I was fifty miles out of um, Fairbanks. There was there was a bit of a heat thing going on. And mm. I got heat stroke, and I got to the Dalton Highway sign and thinking, I've just put my tent up here because I ain't got anything in me. But it was here, and I was hallucinating. Um, I was thinking traffic cones were people, and I was dizzy. And I thought I'd just put my tent down and sleep tonight. And something said to me, and there was a bunch of tourists just come up to see the Dalton Highway. So I said, look, I need a lift into Fairbanks. I think I'm going to pass out if I don't. Um, and that was part of the self-preservation coming in. Look, if you stay here, you're probably not going to be here tomorrow. So this is going backwards as well into Fairbanks. It was going, yeah. I got the lift into Fairbanks off a truck, and uh, so so that was a fifty-mile ride in. Um, and I did make that up. <laughs> I, I don't like cheating on the distance, so I had to make the miles up, which I did a bit later on in the ride. Um, and then I needed a couple of days off because I was dehydrated, and um, and the irony is, I was I was in the heat. And, and I'm an experienced cyclist and I, I'm, I'm, it caught me out. It just caught me out. Was that just because it was your first week? So you weren't really, it was the, the gears hadn't really been able to get going. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Because I was in much hotter temperatures as I got down into thing. And I think it was just acclimatization as well, as much as else, mm. anything else. Does that show the, the importance of when you start a long journey like this is actually to actually really ease into it and that actually mm. you know you're going to be doing big miles but don't try and do them early on mm. is there something to say about could, that there could be something to say about that yeah yeah i mean if common sense would say you know do your 50 or 60 milers yeah right? you know my first day was 140 and or something odd like that and it's about 500 miles into fairbanks and that was a three-day ride um so yeah, I think you can ease into it. But it, again, it's it's part of pushing, uh, which which was the whole intention for me, was to push. Um, but yeah, you learn. You know, you do learn. You're never too old to learn that. Um, so I got into Fairbanks. I think I had two days off. The was, I think it was three, yeah. Three days, yeah. It was a fair amount of time off, considering yeah. it was just only you'd only been cycling for five days. Well, there was... It there was, showed how much your body was struggling. It was it was whack. That's right. Yeah, because uh, yeah, my daughter Amelia helped book some accommodation and someone had trolled me at the top of the world and sent me some pretty nasty messages. Um, and that mentally sort of screwed me up. And I was actually ready to call the ride. I was ready to just say, right, yeah, just get me a flight back. Um, I've had enough. 
And that was it. And I'd only got to Fairbanks. And that was something that was completely external to where it was you external were to and it what was, you were focused on. It was someone trying to impose their negativity onto me. And that was that was tough, you know, because this ride was everything for me. Yeah. This was the start of a new life. And they were trying to stop me doing that. And there was two people. There was, um, you know, my daughter and a very good friend of mine, uh, Chantal. They just sent me a couple of, just some small words. Don't give up. You could do it. Had you shared these problems with, with them for them to give you the, that I, they, I just said, like, I've been trolled. You know, I'll just get me a flight back. You know, I don't care. And uh, so Amelia booked me a couple of nights accommodation and I stayed in a hostel. And that was quite good because over the couple of days that I needed to get my head straight and get rid of this troll out of my head because it was there, it, you know, whenever someone's negative to you, generally it's their, it's their imposition. It's their, they're trying to control you with their negativity. And um, just ignore it. You know, that's, that's, that's their issue. That's not yours. That's their issue. And it took me a couple of days to reboot that. And, um, and then I left Fairbanks in the rain. So the irony is I got sunstroke and then I left in the rain. And I got 100 miles in and I sent a text to the people I stayed with, with my box, burn the box, I'm not coming back. So I knew as soon as they'd burnt the box, there was no turning back. And they burnt it. And uh, that was great. And then I was on my way. So from Fairbanks, it was game on. Yeah. Then you started bashing out 100 mile days consecutively. Yep. Through all sorts of weather. Yep. How do you manage the weather out on the bike? You've got wind, you've got rain, you've got hail. You had thunderstorms. <laughs> I've had pretty much everything you can throw at me. What stops you? Uh, nothing. Nothing stopped me yet. Does it just slows you down? Just slows me down. The, the the wind was interesting. Well, the heat, the wind, all of it are just, they're, they're just parts of the journey. Um, the wind I look at, I started to try and not look at the wind as a as an enemy. I tried to look at it as a friend. It was just 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 trying to push me as a bit of resistance. I thought, well, okay, you know, you, you're trying to slow me down a bit today. Well, I'll just go with it. So I just keep my head down on the drops, you know, on the, on the aero bars. And, you know, and just... Try not to get too wound up about it. Just accept it for what it is. It's wind, it's rain, it's sun. Just accept it for what it is. And uh, you take precautions. You know, you do. You put your waterproofs on. And um, and just go carefully. Make sure you've got your lights on. You can be seen. And if you're doing 10 miles an hour, you know, in 10 hours you've done 100 miles. And there were days when I was too hot. and might have done, done short of 70 milers or something like that. In Canada there was a Mucho Lake and there was, it was quite hilly. And I, I just... I was planning to do a 120-mile ride. It ended up as 80-something at Mucho. And I actually left Mucho Lake to make a break for Tow River. I got about five miles out of Mucho Lake and thought, no, this isn't going to happen. So I turned around, found a campsite, took stock, and um, got up the next day and pushed on another 100 miles. So there must be something to say about how you manage a schedule so that you are in tune with what your body, what you know you can do, and when you know you need to stop because it's important to be sustainable across months. I, I knew I had a long time to go. And I thought, well, I could make these miles up. So, you know, I wanted to try and average 100 miles a day, um, which would bring me in at 140 days for doing doing one way, which I was pretty much for long. Well, pretty pretty near it, really. And there was days when I got um, 140 miles in, 150 miles, 200 mile, you know, and a 200 mile day, well, that's two days. Or that's, you know, several days of 90 milers or whatever. So... You start, as soon as you go over 100 miles, you get 101 miles or 110. You start to get miles in the bank. That's how I would look at it. So those were bonus days. It takes a while to make a day up, but you can make them up. So if I had an 80 miler, I could make that up in a couple of days, which is fine. So 
but it was just being sensible. You're not long in, in Alaska yep. before you then approach Canada. You're camping out with bears. Camping out with the bears, which was great. With your bear spray? With my bear spray. I think it's here, reading your, your blogs, it's kind of where you actually started to really see the kindness of strangers uh, yeah. uh, being a Torah. Yeah. Um, you, you, I think you stayed with someone and you'd left your water bottle with them and they yeah, drove 30 miles. To, to they, I'd left my, uh, my camelback. I said, look, I'll turn back and come and get it because I thought I might need, you know. I said, no, 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 don't turn around. So they just came and found me on the road mm. and wished me luck again. It's, as much, it's, it's like less, it's probably like 40 minute drive for them. Would it yeah, 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 yeah. The roads are pretty good there. Mm. Um, but that shows the kind of, the willingness of people to help to help who's passing through. You're just, just a stranger. Just to help. And I think when you live in a wilderness, they understand the isolation and um, and what it takes to survive in something like that. And um, and they're they're very prepared to help. And it's enlightening. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember where they where they turned up because I was just riding by the lake and there was a just at the side there was a beaver making um making a house, you know, just at the wow. side of the lake. And I'm thinking and then all of a sudden my camelback turns up. Rock and roll. You don't get that experience in centre of a city somewhere. No, no. It's an irony, really. You would have thought in civilised cities you'd get help, but generally it's every man for himself in a city, whereas when you're in the country and people respect how yeah. difficult it is, you, you get more kindness. These were people you were staying with. Yeah. Um, you balanced, I guess, in, in the North America at least, you balanced your time between camping out and campgrounds, yeah. um, maybe a hotel or motel, and also staying with, would it have been people that you might, might have met along the way? Not so much met along the way. The guys in um, Canada, they were friends of a friend of a client. Right. And they just said, oh, he's, you know, he's coming Nearby, over. Nearby, yeah. Yeah. And they said, put him up. One thing as a cycle tourer will know is that you probably want to get out fairly early. Yes. Um, to beat the heat. Yeah. If you're traveling through hotter weather, but also just to get your, your ride done in daylight so you can... Yeah, I think day, daylight riding is sensible. You don't yeah. want to be... Because you can't see what's on the road in front of you in the dark, even with the best lights in the world. You're just talking about hallucinating. Yeah. You don't want to be in that position where... No, you just need to be a bit careful. Um, And you don't know what's on the road. And at night time, you know, even though you might be lit up by a Christmas tree, sometimes you don't know who's driving the car behind you. Mm -hmm. Or staying at a motel or staying um, through the kindness of someone who's put you up for for the night... You want to get off early in the morning, sometimes yep. before breakfast. Yep. Um, but you also need to maybe balance when there's a free breakfast there to, yep. to nab some food or when someone is being kind enough to offer you their place. And so how do you balance the the need to get out on the road, but also being polite <laughs> when you're in hospitality of someone who's opened the, the doors to you? The, the hospitality, the, they were cyclists, they're outdoor people. They knew the, the, the need for me to get up. So they were up early? No, I, they they had a downstairs uh, they had a downstairs um, apartment room, so I could make my own way up. So uh, I had something to eat with them when I got there, and then I was out early doors, and they were, you know, so I could leave without disturbing anyone. Um, but I was more focused. I knew I could get food on the road at that point, so my focus re- was really to get riding, you know, and then get the food later because I always find if I eat too early or just before. I can't ride very well. You know, I'm too full. Mentally, I need to get going. I think once I start the day, then I'm in control. Mm-hmm. You know, so and also, conversations with people can sometimes go on longer than you want them to. So, you know, I just just get away when I can. Yeah. And camping, putting all your equipment away, can take half an hour, forty five minutes before you're even on the road. So, um, you have to be up at super early to you know to get that done. 
And, and I'd always try and finish as soon as I could because then I know I'd have time to unwind, go and get some food, get washed, get showered and then ready for the next day. Yeah, the time off the bike is also important, it isn't is. it? Yeah. It is. I took more this time than when I was in the 2019 ride because I knew I was going to be away for longer. Um, and last time I just took my cycle shoes, but this time I took my trainers. So at least I could go for a walk and run if I wanted to run or, you know, instead of just wearing cycle shoes all the time, which can be, you know, they're cycle shoes, they're not walking shoes. Yeah. So you pass through Canada. Mm. Uh, I think on one of your final days through, you hit 300 kilometers, which would have been your two, 212. Two, 212 miles, yeah. 12 hours, rain, hail, thunder. It was certainly a day that would kill most people. But what kept you going on a, on that day? You just felt so good on the bike? Uh, I felt good. Um, I had a bit of a, the, the wind was on my flank as well, so I had a bit of wind assist. Um and it was great. You know, I mean, it was it was a challenge to get through the hail and I could see the see the storm. And it was a almighty downpour and it was painful. And then the rain really started. So I'm sheltering under some sort of bush and the cars are stopping because they couldn't see where they were going. So I was riding in zero yeah. visibility. I thought, oh, there's a car stopped. Oh, he stopped. Might, might want to give me some help, you know. So I went up and said, are you all right? You know, he said, yeah, yeah, I just couldn't see where I was going and... um Thought I better stop on the road. I thought, oh, fair enough. And, uh, he, he wasn't interested. He was just, but the gullies were full. The rain was running. Someone had abandoned their motorbike, and it was. And then, then it started to clear. And just as I left, I mean, I was so I'd never been wet. You know, you, you couldn't have got more wet. Um, and just as I'm riding to carry on, a guy did stop in his truck and said, "Can I give you a lift? You know, you shouldn't be riding in this." I said, "You're going the wrong way." <laughs> he said, "I can take you for some shelter." I said, nah, I said, it's fine, thanks. I'm wet now. It's not going to make any difference. Most people would have wanted to stop. Yeah. As soon as their body's wet, they'd be like, right, get the taxi. Get me to somewhere where I can get dry and warm. I, I was tempted, but I, I just needed to keep going. Needed to keep going. And it felt like a challenge. You know, it felt, it felt like God was trying to stop me. You know, it was a God killer day. It was, we're going to stop you. You're not going to get going again. And, and that for me was the mental challenge saying that, you know, you can either stop or you can go. And when I got going again, I felt pretty good. And um, and I, I was about 150 miles into uh, what's called Vulcan County. And only in Canada or America, and they've got a model of the Starship Enterprise. They've got the Vulcan Center. There are all these things relative to Star Trek. And there was a couple of girls outside the station, outside this Vulcan Center, trying to do selfies of each other. I said, I'll do a photograph. So I did a photograph of both of you. And they said something funny to me. I said I was going to this next town, which was... 50 odd miles and uh i didn't have the heart to tell them they, they said oh you're you know this you're really hardcore doing 50 miles i didn't have the heart to tell them i just done over 150 but it gave me confidence to you know that that they had in me to tell me how good i was mm. i thought well let's crack on then so i went and pushed on and biggest biggest down the bike i'd had so that was good that uh, gave me confidence of what i could do it felt like that's when it's yeah it was almost like it was Everything had clicked into place. Felt a turning point. Um, you pop across to the USA mm. on day 29. This is collectively yep. your journey. The US Border Patrol. Uh, they uh, were very interesting. Took you inside, but looks like you passed through okay. Well, they were interesting. I didn't see the stop sign for where I needed to stop. So I pulled right up to the booth and uh, I just thought it was quite comical because the generally people I find are pretty good. But this border guard obviously took against me. And he said, didn't you? I said, no, I didn't see the stop sign. It's my passport. Here's my passport. And I said something. 
said something about where are you from? I said, I'm from England. Can't you tell from my accent? And he said, right, you're going inside. I thought, okay. I was polite, but um, but he didn't like it. And he just wanted to stamp his authority. So I went in, all the other guys in the building. And they were very polite. It was just this one person mm. that just wanted to stamp their authority. And I actually thought that was quite funny. I, I didn't say anything. I didn't. I was just, I behaved myself. You don't, you don't wind people up like that. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you have a journey to go on. As well, I've got to get yeah. somewhere. I guess when you look at all the countries you're, you're crossing as well, you think about all the potential problems you might have at border patrols. Mm. Perhaps the USA was not one that you'd think it would be. No, no, but it was. It was. He was quite aggressive and authoritative. Well, it's just the wrong person on the wrong day. Wrong day, wrong person, and um, but that's what it was. So now we're a full month into your tour. The temperatures are hotting up. We're now in, in September, mm. passing through the USA. Yeah, I think it's not until day thirty-seven that you actually have your first real day off from cycling. That was into Lyman after from having some time off for the first week. Mm. Um, I think you'd mentioned the day before that you had had suicidal thoughts when out on the bike. Yeah, and you talked about how a year ago previously you were having them hourly. Yeah, how did you manage that mentality of being on the bike in that situation when you're on your own? Did you just know that you had to stop and take a day off? Yeah, I mean it was tough. It was a tough day, and it was hot. And uh, I think that was into Lima where I took the first day off. Um, and it was super hot. It was well over 100 degrees. And I started to run out of water. I mean, all of this was good testing for South America. And it was ironic. You know, I got to what was called the last chance crossing. And I'd run out of water. And Lyman was still 30 miles away. And I thought there might be something at the last chance crossing to get water. And there wasn't. And there was a couple from Colorado on their way back. They'd been up dirt biking with one of their sons. And they gave me two litres of water. I said, here you go, you know, on your way. And what kindness was that? I mean, that kept me going. That kept me alive, really. And um, and the suicidal thoughts, yeah, you, you you have to process that. You just have to think, well, I'm either going to crack on or I'm not. When you've got jobs to do, I say job to do, when you've got a right to do, I really try and focus on that. And I was tired. I was apocalyptically tired. And I got into Lyman quite late at night. Um, because my energy was spent, you know, through the heat. And I found out the next day it was the hottest day on record that Lyman had ever had, and they were going through a heat wave. So I'd cycled in 100-degree heat plus for 145 miles. And um, I needed a day off. You know, this was the... It was really the start of me saying, I don't need to punish myself anymore. When yeah. you need to take a day, take a day. And it was a good it was a good thing I did. Yeah. It managed to reset. I think this might, might have been a day as well when you... You caught up with your therapist. Mm. Is it Niall? Niall, yeah. From Ashdown Counselling. You said you'd um, you'd struggled initially to find a, a, a therapist that suited you and you found Niall and it, yeah. it's really helped you um, process everything in your past. Um, going on a bike tour and leaving that world behind and focusing yeah. on this one, but you still kept a connection with him and still had sessions with him. I still have sessions. I still will have sessions um, because... Part of the PTSD is still the shadows, you know, whereas, whereas before is a very bright light. Now they're shadows to what they were. Um, and he, he helps. He's helped enormously. And a lot about therapy is trust as well and who you trust. And they can see the they, they can see the place you need to get to, but you can't see it yourself. And I think you need to talk about things, you know, because where you bottle things up, the trauma is held within the body, you know, and you, you know, so when something traumatic happens to you, it affects you physically as well. And trying to release that trauma and re-engage how the mind thinks into a more positive way. And um, you realise you've led a life with the trauma that happened to you, not knowing who you really are. 
um, because you've been in denial for so many years, decades. And and I think, again, the cycling is something that helped me define who I am and find who I am. So, yeah, the suicidal thoughts were there and they kept coming back and they were there, but they get less and less. And, and suicide is about taking control because sometimes when you don't know where to go, you don't know what to do, that's the only thing you've got left in your power. That's the only thing you've got left of your own control because no one else can control that. No one else can influence that. It's just yourself. And that's the last point of control you've got. And riding and cycling and being positive, that's about me taking control over my suicide and my thoughts. And and always trying to wake up the next day and thinking, well, it could be a good day today. And generally it was. You know, I'd have bad days on the bike where I couldn't just didn't want to go on. Just, you know, someone please steal my bloody bike. You know, just just go. Yeah, looking for an excuse to finish, yeah. Yeah, looking to excuse to stop. Um, but having Niall on side and yeah, I needed needed a couple of sessions while I was going down just to help keep me rebalanced. So even though you can sort of push these big miles out and big miles out, you know, I need help. I needed help. And I still all, and I still get it. This is all part of the balance, I suppose, that kind of I mean your tour kind of it's a great metaphor for life almost about needing to find where you can push yourself, but also where you can learn to stop and relax and reset. Absolutely right. And Don't. having consistency in everything as well, so that knowing that you're not going for too long without any one of these parts. Structure. That, yeah. Structure. And getting that through, you know, getting through the the ride and, and realising, and again, it was about limits and about knowing when to be kind to yourself and when not having to push. I mean, I wasn't out to set world records or, or anything. I was out to push myself. And I was out, and, and at the start, I was out to destroy myself you know, with the return, but but eventually, you know, you sort of, you evolve and you you discover who you are and what you can do. And that was all part of it. So you get to Mexico, you're drinking a huge amount of fluids, still doing your 100 plus miles roughly a day. Day 52 of your tour, your first puncher. Yeah. It's in 5,000. It's not bad, is it? Miles. I can't, I can't believe that. Does that go... Go, I mean, what, what tyres were you using? This is clearly like some kind of... I've got um, some Schwabe, um marathons? Marathons, yeah. Marathons, yeah, yeah Much well-trusted touring tyres. Yeah. And clearly that you are a, a cycling advert for that. If you've managed to go 52 days, five, over 5,000 miles without a single puncher. Yeah, it was annoying. <laughs> was annoying because like, you, you felt like you, you should have... Ha- no, it was, it was just, it was comical in a way that I was thinking, please don't get accepted, don't you? Because when you get a puncher on a touring bike, as you know, you have to take all your panniers off. You have to get the wheel off. And I thought, oh, crikey, here we go. But it was all right. You know, I thought I got away pretty lightly after 5,000 miles. Yeah, you'll take and that, yeah. I, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. And then um, I carried so many spare. I mean, I took quite a few tubes with me and I came back with three unused tubes, you know, and you use slime tubes. I use slime tubes, and I also had ordinary. Um, uh, I bought Schwabe tubes that were slightly oversized for the bike for the tires, but only on the basis that they were thicker, thicker yeah. rubber. So, and I used tie liners as well. And but slime tubes are pretty good. I mean, they do give up. They do give up the ghost eventually, but um, just for the odd splinter and things, they're very good. But if you get anything too big, you know, I had a, sh- a shard of glass go in and cut part of the tire so i always carry a bit of super glue with me so what i do is change the tire fix a puncture pump the tire up and as the crack opens on where the shard of glass is i slip some super super glue let the tire down a bit. i've done the same actually yeah Yeah. just um and it helps protect the tire 
Yeah, I'm not sure mine worked so much well. I think also I learned that the new kind of um, once the uh, our money changed into plastic, like like a yeah. five pound note or something, you could put that on the inside of the tire. No, I I never knew that. Saw that on the internet once, and it came in. I, I needed it on a bike ride, um, and I was really excited to be like right let me get my fire out. Probably- i can fix this now <laughs> and it just gets you home basically yeah. enough and you, you can probably you could probably ride further but it's enough to get you home if you've got a crack just in your get tire. home yeah just get home change it so yeah five thousand in the first puncture i did pretty well i did pretty well yeah uh what was it like crossing into mexico uh, i imagine it's it's a lot different it than, was than, yeah than north america it is you you go from a wealthy country into not such a wealthy country and as soon as you ride in you 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 feel the poverty poverty you um it's a less wealthy country um and you're always i'm always on my guard of it you know then because mexico can be dangerous it's got a high kill rate but i suspect that's more to do with um there's drug yeah gangs and things um but i always found the mexico i found most people wherever i went were really good and was it from here on that you stayed only in hotels yeah i made the call then because mexico could be quite dangerous um there was one hotel, I knew it was because I stayed in it on the last last journey, um, but at night there was gunshots. And, you know, and I just thought, well, I've made the right call to stay in hotels. And that was all through Central America as well. Yeah. I thought, no, I'm not going to risk it. And that was pretty much all, all the way through South America, apart from, you know, the Atacama and sleeping at some of the gas stations as well. Yeah, places where there, there wasn't yeah. much around. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I felt safe in, I mean, Argentina and Chile, I felt pretty safe, you know, but some of the Central Americans, I thought, no. No, it's it was white, and they were hostels. They were, they weren't expensive. Although yeah, it's you know I'm I'm going for your for your safety. It's worth safety. It, yeah. You know, for forty quid a night, or some case twenty quid a night. Not even that. Some of them, it was worth staying in. And doing big distances, you need to keep clean and showered off for a long journey. You don't want to be sleeping no. unclean. Yeah. No. So yeah. for a short journey, you can manage. You can. You can manage for. A, I would say for a short journey, probably three days is maximum. Yeah, I think that's, that's been my max. So yeah. yeah, otherwise you get a bit smelly and it gets a bit painful. Yeah. So then October comes around, you cross into El Salvador. Yeah. And it was in El Salvador when you thought actually you would quit this ride and it would finish. Your rear tire had given up, you'd fix several punches. You'd witness a dog taking its last breath. It was horrid. Absolutely horrid. And you didn't think you'd make it to Honduras, which was the next country along the tour. Mm. The poverty, I mean, it was poverty and the, and the life is cheap, you know, and seeing the dead dogs and and, and being a dog owner. and I, it, I think mentally that's part of the reason I wouldn't be able to do the return through because I, I struggle with that. Seeing the, And in Mexico, there was a, a fresh dog kill and blood and things. And But then when I went through the Central American, it got worse. And then there was dogs eating other dogs, you know, and there was just everything across the road. It was carnage. And they don't care. You know, the drivers, they just treat it like rubbish. And they, they crap, they don't care. They just run it over. Or, and, and no one no one cares. And that really hurt, you know, to actually see all of that. The value of life was so cheap. And, and I couldn't, I could barely take that, could barely deal with it. Um, uh, but I just had to sort of crack on and do the best I could and get through El Salvador. And um, and this is when I started to see, get to gas stations where they'd have the shotguns. You know, I started to feel a bit uneasy. You don't have shotguns, particularly, you know, going on to the following countries. And I started to feel a bit unsafe. And on the last day in El Salvador, what I thought was the last day, 
because I managed to get to the sea, I took a bit of a detour and found some more great characters and some mm. there were some really good laughs and some fun guys. Uh, mm. Found the sea and it was great just to smell the sea. It was fantastic. Got to walk on the beach. The you know the sea was warm and stuff. Um, and then that day I left, and there must have been something in the ice and the drink that I, I had. And I met a couple of guys from America going off trekking into the volcanoes, and I got I got food poisoning. And it was a big old day, and this is the day before I was going to go into Honduras, and it was fortuitous that I got food poisoning because I was laid up for two days um, in a hotel. Didn't want to let fifty one fifty up, but I insisted, and they managed to keep me in the room. And it was quite a good hotel, you know. It was, Mm. For El Salvador, I think it was about seventy pounds a night, which was good. So I stayed there, um, got rid of the food poisoning. But in the ensuing time, there was a hurricane that had gone the through. Storm Julia passing yeah. through, yeah, yeah, which it, would have made your journey impassable. Right? Well, I'd have, I'd have probably gone out. It wouldn't have stopped me going out, right. but, but the food poisoning made me stop. So I had a couple of days, um, and thankfully I did. But on the on the ride into the last day. I pulled into a gas station. I was going up a hill, and it was raining, and I just needed to stop. I just needed some rest. And there was a guy with a, a security guy with a shotgun, made me feel unwelcome. I thought, well, here we go. So I felt a bit. Un- I, this is me starting to feel uneasy, which was why I was. Well, I've had enough of this. Right. Um, but got to the hotel, and fortunately, I got food poisoning, which stopped me. And then um, started to feel a bit better after taking the. You know, the, it was it was two nights there, but one day off. So but I needed it. Yeah, I needed it. It's almost like looking at like the silver lining behind. Damn right. It was shit it was. that happens to you. It was literally the shit that stopped me. Yeah. And I needed it. Because knowing about your mentality and your fortitude to kind of push through all weathers. I'd have gone on. That you might not have uh, understood the power of the storm that you were in. No. Nope. You could have got injured. Yeah. Or worse. Yeah. I'd have gone on. There's, there's no question. Yeah. No question I'd have gone on. Um, but I was pleased that it stopped me. Um, there's a greater force out there. Yes. Above all of us. And yeah. You might not understand what it is or... No. Who it is, but it, fate played a hand. Thankfully, you you got back on the road after a few days reset through Honduras. I think you just spent a day in Honduras. Yeah, didn't like it. Felt uneasy. Yeah, into Nicaragua. Yes. Uh, border patrol. You were told you needed to notify the country two or three days before entering, which yes. you said was not true. Nope. I think you managed to pay them. Well, I knew what was coming. I sort of. I didn't. You don't let them know what you're thinking but I was actually quietly laughing to myself because I knew what was happening and uh, it's almost if you want to have one of these experiences it was it was funny it was it was funny I mean it was stressful because I you know with the anxiety that oh what's going on I mean they could have stopped my ride they could have stopped it and um, I said no I need your passport I said okay I'm going to go talk to my boss so he told me to go and sit down 5150 and I were in the customs and uh, and he and then he sort of came over to me and he said, come back with me. We're going to let you through. I said, and I thanked him profusely. I, said, and I, I knew what was going. So I put $10 in my passport. And he said, um, would you like to share your gratitude for, for the help we've given you? I said, yes, it's in my passport. And, so you uh, preempted what it was I preempted what was going to happen. Yeah. So I gave him $10. And, and I don't think people give them $10. I think it's maybe 2 or 3 or $5. I thought, no, no, just give him 10 And all of a sudden he became my best friend. But couldn't do enough for me. Money talks, eh? And and I knew it was coming. I, I just it was quite nice to be right, you know, and and it was just corrupt. Yeah. It was corrupt. Yes. And that's what it was. There's different ways you can handle a situation like that. You either get grumpy and angry or you just go with the flow. Yeah. And you to understand accept. that in certain parts of the world. That's what it is. For me to get through Nicaragua for 10, 10 bucks, I don't care. 
Um, at this point in your journey, you're 73 days in, it's mid-October. Um, I think you preempted certain things that you might need for your bike. Yep. Um, so uh, this is, again, again is, I suppose, another good touring hack, actually. You had a mission control. I did. Back in the UK. Yep. Who was helping you with a lot of your logistics. Mm. And they were going to send some parts out to you because they're just, I guess they're just very hard to find. They are. You can't get the bits and pieces that you need, particularly on, on the bike, you know, with the gearing and things and the tires. So I had a chat with Mission Control, um, Steve. He got the rear cassette. He sent that to Ian, also known as the King, who's a fantastic friend, brilliant. He organised the tires, uh, got it all packaged up uh, and sent out to the sailing company who were taking me from Panama to Colombia. And when I got to Colombia, everything was waiting for me. I suppose something to say about kind of maybe not to be too stubborn about how unsupported your unsupported journey is, mm. is knowing that you still need to still have need help. friends and connections and, yeah. and ask for help when you, you need it. Damn right. There's, damn right. there's nothing about the, it. The bike wouldn't have survived. You know, I wouldn't have got on. You know, chain was going and slipping and stuff. And so, yeah, you need to accept that. So then you cross into Costa Rica, a much easier immigration. Hmm. I've never been, but I've heard it's a beautiful country. Costa Rica is just a place to go. Much more wealthy. Um, very, and this it was at this time the the climate had changed from, you know, the the heat of the deserts in Mexico and America getting into the tropics now. So you're basically going through jungles, and um, and the humidity was was unbelievable. You know, you're just going through fluids all the time. Um, but again, it's warm. You're going through banana plantations, palm trees. You're seeing. I mean, uh, uh, you know, at one point I actually saw a dead sloth at the side of the road, which was really, I thought, oh come on, you know, these are. But so I'd swap sort of dead dogs for sloths, and and um, um, but it was yeah, Costa Rica. It was very very green, very lush, um, and near the coast for a, for about a day or something, and uh, and that was refreshing. Yeah, near the coast. You still had your bear spray on you. I did. Yeah, that that sort of broke down. What happened? Well, I stopped keeping it on. Yeah, I'm pleased you read that bit. That is so bloody painful. My God, did that I, I've, I've never smelt it, but I imagine it's not a nice thing to... It's, it's painful. Um, what had happened is I stopped keeping it on the handlebars because, you know, where I kept things of old, and I started putting it in the back pocket. And, of course, where I was sweating, it started to corrode the bottom of the bear bottle. Okay. The bear spray. This had happened over weeks. Then I sat down on, there was roadworks, that's right, there was roadworks that were going on. So I sat down on the curb. And what happened then, the, the, the bear bottle clinked or hit the side of the curb and all of a sudden it got a pinprick and it started spraying. And it went down the back of my legs, got some on my hands. And I thought, God, what do I do? So I threw it quickly into the hedge. Mm -hmm. And um, by cranky, I've never been so burnt in my life. And this is, uh, so we, I, do, what, I don't understand what bear spray is. Is it like a it's, it's, pepper spray It's type? pepper spray, yeah. It's pepper spray. And the irony is I got it for protection, but it bloody well hurt, you know. And uh, But I'd corroded it, you know, with it just being in my back, mm. you know, my back cycling pocket all the time. And that took, I would say, a good 10 days to get off my skin. Wow. Good 10 days. It was still stinging after 10 days. So just be careful of it. You know, it's dangerous stuff. Yeah. You end up cleaning yourself with um, what turned out to be your clean pair of boxes. I did. Which is not something you planned at the time. Just Yeah, but it's something I didn't wear afterwards. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> that would have been mightily inconvenient. Um, then we pass into Panama. Yeah. 
getting close to, I guess, a, a kind of halfway point in your journey. I think Panama was, for me, was, you know, I did a little video of that. And um, I would be where I'd been pushing. Uh, I mean, I could have either pushed harder and got a, an earlier ferry across to Colombia or slow down and then got the, the later ferry. So I had the choice of pushing on or slowing down. I made the call to slow down a bit because I was, I'd lost so much weight at this point. I, I was really quite emaciated. Um, just through pushing. I had no reserves left. So made the call to slow down, get to Colombia. And I think I had four or five days in Colombia before the boat crossing. Mm -hmm. And I just spent the time there getting getting 50. Because because the, the, the rear um, rack had broken. Um, so I had to fix that. And that lasted about a thousand. Well, it was still going, but it broke a thousand miles before I got into Panama. Yeah. Um, and then that was a rest and recoup. So you needed to cross what's the... The, the, the Darien Gap. Darien Gap, which is, um, I guess, the only part of the Pan-American Highway which doesn't really exist. There's no actual road that kind of travels Yeah, you, you can cross. It's, it's jungle, you need to... But it's it's one of the most dangerous because drug smugglers, yeah. you, you go in there, you're like... And it's, it'll slow you down by probably weeks. You, you'd probably die through. if you went through there. Right. I mean, thrill seekers go in, they don't come out. Yeah. It's just stupid. Don't go there. It's not really the official part of the route. No. So, so you have to either fly across or fly get, or get the across. boat across. I made the choice to get the boat because I wanted to sort of stay land-based if it was much land-based as I could. And the boat was the right way. And I'm, 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 I don't really like sailing, but I just thought it'd be another reason to sort of try and break something I'm not very good at, which is sailing. So yeah. I spent, um, I think, three or four days on the boat. Yeah, in close confinement with yeah. a lot of other adventure types who were making yeah. the same passing. Well, there were, there were sort of students on there year out yeah. there's a couple of older guys a couples and um but yeah it was a good experience it was good i felt like the grandfather of the boat um 5150 was strapped to the side of the thing strapped, strapped at the first floor strapped beside the boat and uh i was very cautious i had two pieces of rope and i said um uh you know are you sure that's safe oh no we've done it all before <laughs> i said i said it's a ten thousand dollar bike and then after i said that they went up and put more rope on right. it. right yeah uh, yeah, I think worth, they sort of realised worth a few dollars more of rope. Yeah, so they they strapped me was fine, and I was just stuck in this little box for three days. And I, I st and it was at this point I'd really been with people, and I thought I, I struggled a bit. I really struggled, so I kept myself to myself. Um, and I, I, they 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 respected that. They respected that. It wasn't personal. I couldn't jump off the side of the boat that they were doing because I was for fear of breaking anything or spraining a foot mm. or arm. So I was restricted in what I could do. It must be so hard for your body as well to adapt from cycling these hundred mile days, and then suddenly it, having to be somewhere where you can't even walk. It did. It did start. It did start to sort of become difficult. Um, I mean, in Panama, I was on the cycle machine every day in the hotel, which is what I find crazy. Is even on your days off, you still went to the gym. Yep. To do some hours on on the gym bike. Yep. I guess that's purely just to keep your legs spinning, to keep the muscles, the twitch, twitch going. To keep the keep the lactic acid at bay, and just keep, and it is to keep the legs going. And I felt a bit guilty because I just wanted to sort of keep going, but it was a false break, and I think I needed it before I hit Colombia. Yes, this is a good reset. I think you had a total of ten days off the bike, mm. and it was at this point as well. I think you decided that this was going to be a one way trip. Yeah, where I mean, your original plan was to, you said, finish you off. Yeah. Um, to be killed by bike. Yeah. In a sense. What did you mean by that? Well, just ride until I drop. Were you prepared to even do that? Was this yeah. your mentality at the time? Just to Yeah, yeah, yeah. For this to be a one-way journey? It was just a one-way journey. Yeah. It was the start of a new life to push myself and probably just end it. You know, just finish doing something massive. Let something on the road decide fate for you. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which is a crazy mentality to have, but that, I guess it must stem back from the troubles you were having. It is. Yeah, it just stems all back to the self-worth. And that's what that's really what I ended up writing for was the self-worth, you yeah. know, getting to the end. And um, and the mind was sort of playing tricks. You know, you do deserve to do it. No, you don't deserve to do it. You know, you do, you don't. And, and sort of being pushed and pulled with, you know, the mental sort of thing. It helps you find clarity, really. You know, when you push and put, well, for me, when I was pushing all the time, it, you know, I found out I wanted the self-worth. I didn't want the self-destruction. Yeah. And that was why I decided to do the one way, because going both ways would have been about destruction, not about self-worth. And I had a conversation with Ian, you know, the king. He was the one that said, look, if you stop now, you've got all the respect from everyone you know. And he said, one way is the right way. You don't, you've got nothing left to prove. Yeah. You know, most people couldn't do a day of what you do, let alone day after day. Um, and that started to trigger things into me, thinking, well, you know, perhaps I'm not such a bad bloke. You know, perhaps I can do this. I don't need to go and punish myself anymore. It seemed like it took you to, to kind of travel all that distance to really if you understand the purpose yep. of, of your own worth. Yep. You said it's important not to break yourself because then the abuser wins and takes your quality of life away. They do. And that's, that's any sort of abuser. That could be physical or financial. You know, don't let people devalue who you really are. You know, you're important. You know, you are really important. And throughout my career, I've worked for people who not consciously, but subconsciously work for people who you sort of think won't pay you. And because you don't think you're worth being paid, you know, it's your, it's your, you know, your self-worth is literally non-existent. So you punish, you punish self, and you make them millions and millions of pounds. And they do very well. And then they don't pay you think, well, I told you they wouldn't pay. You know, it's all about sort of beating yourself down, but that's their weakness. That's not mine. That's that's their weakness, and you have to be aware of that. And it's the same with physical abuse. So so don't don't let them win. You know, don't give up. So you discovered this about yourself on this ride. Yeah. A uh, kind of a, very much a kind of almost like halfway point at, yeah. from Panama into Colombia. Hmm. Unfortunately, you still had many more miles to go. <laughs> well, <laughs> I did, I did, and it takes me back. I had a conversation with Ashley. Uh, I was at university with Ashley, and he said, "Tim, you've got so far to go." I said, "No, I haven't." I said, I don't think about it like that. I don't think about how far I've got to go. I just think where I'm going. So I don't think about the miles. I just think, right. And it got to a point where I was ticking the countries off. And um, and Woody gets that. He said, another one tick. Yeah. yeah. Tick, done. Yes. Tick, done. Tick, done. And, um, and it helped to think about it in that context. But yeah, I mean, there was a lot of miles to go. There was a lot of miles to go. So you entered Colombia. This is after your days off. <laughs> yeah. You're now on day 100 of your tour. Um, this is in November. This is a, a really interesting story, I think, actually, because it was a time when uh, your chain had snapped, which I think you managed to fix. Yes. But then your derailleur, your rear derailleur broke, which was beyond about, a repair which you could do on the road. About 10 metres after, I'd literally yeah. fixed the thing. And 10 metres on. And the derailleur, the front derailleur never go. I mean, they're probably the most reliable bit. The, oh, the front derailleur, yeah. It was the front yes, derailleur, okay, yeah. just the pivot snapped. So here we go. So it was stuck in bottom ring. And I fortunately I had good reception. Yeah. You know, I could either go backwards to a bike shop, which was 15 miles away. I didn't want, I never went back. This is the, this is what I think is so important, especially for, for someone who's also got experience with bike tours. You had this choice. You could go back to somewhere which you knew existed a bike shop, which yep. you'd obviously either passed or you'd seen on, yep. or you could go forwards with a broken bike. To another bike shop. To the to the unknown. Yeah. So you, we wouldn't know where that bike shop was or where it'd be. I had an idea there was going to be a bike shop there. Uh, I lost reception. I got to the other town. But the, the mentality of... Just go forward. Wanting to... Yeah, always go forward. 
Yeah, don't go, go back. back. Don't go back. Because then I'd think, oh, well, I'd failed if I went back. But that's just me. That's just personal. And then the miles that you have to do again yeah. afterwards, and that doesn't, doesn't, do doesn't sit right in your head. No, go The forward. purpose of this tour is always going forward. Go forward. Yeah, mentally, physically. Um, and that was it. And so I, I just, just took the choice, went forward. Uh, it wasn't too far from another town. And I went up and found the bike shop, fixed the bike, got a new, well, got a secondhand derailleur, put that on. And the generosity of, and kindness that they had mm. was brilliant. Great. Into Ecuador, passing Quito, second highest city in the world. Yeah. Altitude, did that affect you? A bit. A bit. I think because I was becoming acclimatized, you know, Mexico was pretty yeah, high. You were easing into it. I was easing into yeah. it. It's not like going in a car or a bus and you're suddenly going up to, you know, several thousand yeah. meters. Which says something about the way of touring by bike. Mm. Yeah, you you do get acclimatized. I mean, there was there was times when, and I was I was aware of this. I mean, I you know I just made a simple provision of taking a lot of aspirin with me. Um, and there were times when I was riding and my chest was getting tight, and I thought, well, slow it down pop an aspirin just take your time and I didn't rush I didn't put I deliberately didn't push I just I just went at a gentle pace even though I was covering some big miles I just just I just tried to relax into it and um and it and it worked but getting up to Quito that that climb up there geez that nearly killed me and um and then as I'm getting towards the top of uh, Quito I see a woman with a suitcase just trying to go up the hill and I thought I'm lucky I've got two wheels I've got a pair of legs and then it sort of snaps you out of it. It's crazy how everything is all relative. It is relative. To your position. It is. And you just sort of, it snaps you back into yeah. what you're doing as opposed to everything else that's gone before. Yeah, you were talking actually earlier about how coming back to the UK and we're in a cost of living crisis, but actually from where you've been in the parts of the world that you've been, mm. your views on what <sighs> What we, you need to live. Yeah. People just want to live. And um, we're very, very lucky to live in the country we live. And uh, if you said cost of living to someone living under a piece of plastic with one piece of wood where life is cheap, they would wonder what you're talking about. And I've got no doubt that people struggle. I mean, I see that. But when you see people who are just struggling from day to day to actually breathe, let alone anything else, it, it, for me, it gives perspective. And, and it also makes you question, what do you really need? Do we fill our life with lots of possessions that we don't really need or, or subscriptions we don't really need? Yeah. Um, you know, what prioritise? And I suppose the, the, the touring life is such a simple life. You know exactly what you need every day. Yeah. Which is fundamentally food, water and shelter. Yeah, that's it. And if you can have some good conversations and laughs along the way, life's the better for it. You know, and um, it's, it's a, I'm struggling to sort of really understand it, I suppose. Yeah. You know, being away from it for so yeah. many months and then coming back to it. Which I suppose does, does show the importance of global adventure, global travel, is how eye-opening it is mm. um, to see actually what's on your neighbor's fence and beyond. Because otherwise you just get this single mindset of just living a certain way, being con- yeah. in, in, under the influence of a certain way of living, the media that we consume, just yeah. seeing something from, from one angle, but actually visiting other countries. You see a, a broader picture, certainly about people's characters how they survive how they live and how you can then sort of benchmark that about your own country and where you live in you know on your day to day um and very much about how the media sort of pushes that out and um people are controlled by fear you know you can't do this you can't do that you shouldn't do this and i think a lot of that is to do you know you can sort of relate that to cycle touring as well you know oh it's going to be dangerous it's going to be this it's going to be that you can never cycle that distance but you can 
you know, yes, it's dangerous. Well, you can't cross that country because you it's dangerous. Yeah, but it, you can do these things, but you just have to be careful in the way you do them. And uh, but don't be, don't let fear stop you. Why should someone tour by bike? Someone is listening to this and they're inspired. You see the world at a more human pace. You're not isolated, as I, you know, as I said earlier. You're not in an air-conditioned, warm, cosy zone. It's you and the bike and you with the elements. And I think getting out there and seeing and meeting people. When you're on a bike, you've got more opportunity to see and talk and stop. When you're on a car, you're generally going at too fast. You don't see what goes past. You don't see what's at the side of the road. You don't see the person walking the road or anything like that. So it's an experience that you'll never get in, by any other sort of transport, unless you're walking. You know, I think there's the, the equipment, the technology now, the the support that you can get, security you can get from your devices now. You know, the tracking. You know, there's someone will always know where you are. So don't let that put you off. Don't think you're ever alone because someone can always find you. And um, and the and the type and it's great. You know, it's good for you. Yeah, there's going to be wet days and cold days and horrible days. But by crikey, they dissolve when you have a good day, when the sun's running. You know, good temperature, the bike's running brilliantly and you've got some lovely roads. Couldn't be doing anything better, really. So, Peru, the next country on the list. Yeah, probably the most dangerous drivers I've ever had. You talked about a lot of the litter on the roads. It was filthy. I, you, you couldn't pay me to go back to Peru. Wow. There was, a str- there was a couple of days when I hit the coast and I thought, well, this is really what I've been after on the Pan America. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful. But it's, it's a very corrupt country. Um, everyone's out for themselves. Didn't enjoy it at all. Did not enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but the you know there was parts of the scenery and seeing seeing the migrants on the back of trucks just trying to get somewhere or to get out. And um, you know I got hit by the car in um, uh, Lima and pretty aggressive drivers, noisy, frenetic. I just wanted to get out of it. Yeah. You you said um, that you were struggling to, to maintain the mentality of posting nice photos every day when the truth was was very different to what you were seeing. Yeah. And you didn't want to post that online. No, I mean, there was, I think the reality of what I was seeing, I was trying to sort of blog and say, look, this is what it is. And when people were saying nice photos, nice photos, I don't think they could really sort of perceive what was, so that's why I had to say something. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm seeing death and carnage and busy, noisy, smelly, yeah, just a, a completely different way of life. It's a different way of life. But I thought, well, I didn't really want to post that. I mean, I photographed it, but I didn't want to post it because it was. I found it pretty horrific myself. And I've been around the world a bit. And that was that was not nice. Just not nice. Um, and the nicest people in Peru that I met were from Venezuela, which was an irony because Venezuela's struggling, has been for quite a few years now. And people got out because the economy has collapsed and it's not good. But Peru... It was dirty. That it was just horrid. It was just a horrid for me. It was yeah. a horrid experience. That there's good people there, I'm sure. And I, I guess at this point in your journey, you're 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 so now experienced with how to deal with this mentality mm. that you just know that the best thing you can do in a situation like that is just to keep continue moving forward. There is, and there was a, there was a bit of light in Peru as well with a guy called Liam. He saw me from across the road. We saw each other out of wave. He came running across. I picked up on his positivity. You know, he was happy. He said, "Look, I'm, you know, today's my last day. I'm getting to Lima, and I'm going to fly home to Canada." I thought, great, and it gave me a real lift. It gave me a real lift, sort of. So, sort of, and he was saying that Chile was different and this and how good Chile was. I thought, well, it's, that's something optimistic to yeah. look forward to. Chile was where you slept outside in the desert on your own in, yeah. in the Atacama Desert. It was. It must have been quite an experience. Yeah, and I slept out a couple of times. This wasn't a campsite. This was no, wild just, camping. No, just, just wild. It must just, have been very wild. It was. It was just me and the me and the wind and the sun. 
Um, and I was on the periphery. I think, well, in the Atacama, it's never rained in the Atacama apparently, but it did for me, um, which was great. And that was just the luck that I had. It was I found it really funny. So because I didn't put my tent up, I just rolled my sleeping bag out next to fifty one fifty on the stones. Sleep, and then all of a sudden, it was like rain for about about a minute, and I thought, oh come on, please. And then it stopped. Of all the places in the world, of all the people to do it on Atacama it Desert, to be you in, in the Atacama yeah. Desert, it was, and it was hilarious. I did, I laughed. I just thought, oh come on, you have not. It didn't, it didn't bother me. I just, I thought it was funny. And you can't get that experience being in a hotel room. Nope, nope. And it was great, mm. you know. And I actually slept pretty well. Then into Argentina. Well, yeah, Chile into Argentina. Well, I'll tell you a bit about going from San Juan to Atacama to cross over the Jama Pass. Okay. And um, big, big climb, big climb. And uh, I get to, to the Jama Pass. I'm at over 4,000 metres altitude, so high altitude. A lot of climbing, 100 miles, toughest I've ever had on a bike. And I went through two lightning storms. And um, there had been a three-day weather warning, and it was the third day of lightning. And I thought, yeah, it's a yeah, load of rubbish. And it wasn't. And I went straight into a lightning storm and then another one. And it was so frightening. And I got to a point where I can either be frightened or just accept it for what it is. And if I stopped, there'd be lightning. If I carried on, there'd be lightning. So I carried on. And it was cold. I mean, I was I was bitterly cold. And um, and the lightning was within about 30 metres of me. You know, it's proper centre of the storm stuff. And I wanted to try and get photographs of entering such and such country and all this. And I got to the Argentinian side. I thought, thank flipping goodness for that. But I wasn't going to stop because it was so cold. And I thought there was accommodation at the gas station anyway. That turned out to be closed. Um, but as I got down to, to the border crossing from Chile into Argentina and the, what they call the aduanas, the uh, aduana, the, the security man. And there's a six foot six man mountain security pulled me straight into his hut. I thought, well, I've done something wrong, but I better go in the hut. So I got in the hut. First thing he did, he got a blanket, put it around me, put wow. the heater on because um, he could see I was getting hypothermia. And he called the paramedics. This is Benjamin. Benjamin, the fantastic Argentinian. And what a wonderful man. And uh, he stayed in touch. You know, he, he said, if you get into any issues in Argentina, here's my mobile number. So he gave me his mobile. And he stayed in touch all through Argentina. Do you need any help? You're okay. I thought, what a welcome to Argentina. So the paramedics came, wrapped me up in things. They then took me to passport control. The, you were chaperoned through. I was chaperoned through with what the What an experience. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. I mean, what kindness. You know, I mean, I do question whether I get that here. You know, <laughs> um, But it was it was great. And that was a really warm welcome to Argentina. And, and I loved it. We've been talking about how things that happen to you on the journey seem like they're happening for a greater reason. Yeah. And everything seems like eventually it falls into place. Yeah. You were uh, in Argentina in December 2022. Uh, on the day of the World Cup final. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was great. <laughs> of all the days. <laughs> I know. To be in I a country of, of Argentina, you were there to witness the the winning moments Sam of the World to, Cup final. Sam Juan de Tucumán. What I mean, an energy that must have been. Just... It was, well, I was sitting in a hotel because uh, I I'd actually, I had two nights off. I took I took the day off. I thought well, it's going to be crazy going on the roads. And everyone was out. It's just the hotel owner and her daughter and myself. And um, the daughter kept running in and out, couldn't watch it, couldn't watch it. She was so excited, you know. And it went to penalties and then all of a sudden they won. I thought, my goodness, thank flipping goodness. And they deserved to win. They really needed that win. 
I thought, right, I'm going to go out. So I went out and in the main square, it was just absolutely buzzing and the energy was fantastic. And I thought, good luck to you. Yeah. Really and you're luck. just a passerby. You're, I was just you're going passing on through. My back. That's it. Just so. time and circumstance that got yeah. you there. In that it time. was brilliant. Loved it. Um, you spent Christmas in Argentina. Yeah, called over. Yeah. A few days off the bike. Yeah. Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Yeah. When you set off at the beginning of this journey, were you aware that, the, that Christmas Day you'd be? I'd be on my own, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just it was always it part of the plan. It was. I was even planning to cycle on Christmas Day. So, um, But I thought, well, the, nothing was open. I thought, no, no, no point. Yeah. Just take the time off. Day 167, the end. Oh, was that the end? Yeah. This is the, the total amount of days you were you were traveling. There was a, I, I saw one of your videos you posted. I think you were about five kilometers from the end. You'd stopped at the side of a road, kind of like a, a dirt track road. And you were aware of the distance you were, you were about to travel. You, in the way that you were speaking, you very much were a broken man. Yep. You could tell that you were very much at the end of yep. the journey and that you had not much left and you just had enough just to get you there. In the background as well, which is it's almost very cinematic. These wild horses just That's like yeah. just passed by just <laughs> <Yeah>. graciously <laughs> in the video. They're great. Um, and then you were like, right, let's 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 time to get this done. Yeah. And the playlist that you'd been playing throughout your ride, you stuck on, and it came on in the video uh, on your off your loudspeaker. I think it must have been ACDC. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And there was something. So so cinematic about that moment when I was watching this. It almost felt like if this, if your whole journey and story was a film, then it should end here. Yeah. We didn't need to see you get to the actual finish points. No. Because kind of you'd reached it. I knew I was there. But you still had that bit to go. But mentally, physically, everything you had realized, everything that you'd come to achieve. And here, there was the last few miles that you could just have with yourself. And so it was almost like, press play, ACDC would come on and then we'd see you ride off that into the it. sunset next to these wild horses and that would be the end of the film because we wouldn't need to see you reach that actual physical point yeah. because of the journey that you'd gone on to get there. I'd won. How did it make you feel, those last kilometers riding into Ushuaia? Peace. I was at peace. No more anger. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'd ridden it that way. Didn't need anger anymore. And most people just finish in Ushuaia, but Fundamondo, the end of the world, I went to the end of the world. And I went to the end of the world and I got myself respect. And I was at peace. I was, I was happy. I was just like, you know, I'd had everything thrown at me, including trucks, rain, trolling, the heat stroke, food poisoning, hypothermia. Everything that could have been thrown at me, you know, I didn't want it to be an easy ride. I wanted it to be the toughest thing I've ever done, never experienced, and ever likely to experience. But when I push play, you know, it's good. You said, um, and you and you, you did talk about this. This started this journey as a mission to finish yourself off, but it ended, and you wrote this. It ended with a desire to survive and make a difference. Yep. I'm going to do another one. Because it was a privilege to be called an inspiration. Absolute privilege. And I could never accept that before. But actually finishing something so big in one piece and having someone at the end of the world to wait for me. 
And I think that is the ultimate act of kindness, someone flying halfway around the world so I wasn't on my own. And I think there's a metaphor there to say that you're never on your own. There's always someone there. And um, that, had, you know, that saved my life, I think. No, not that it did. It saved my life. And if I can go and do something else and someone takes inspiration from that to not give up, you don't give up. Then I want to do it. You know, that's what I can do. I've actually found what I'm good at. You know, and that's, well, one, I've got my self-respect. Two, I can ride like the devil himself. And um, and life's not over yet, is it? You know, so, yeah, bring on the next one. Tomorrow may well surprise you. Damn right. And what you can achieve. Yeah. So you've um, you've said you wanted to do something. Yeah. Again, something different. Yeah. What's on the cards? A triathlon-based. I can run. Okay. I've done the Paris Marathon a couple of times. Yeah. How's your swimming? Not so good. Something to work on. But that's you know, that's part of the challenge. Yeah. It's part of the challenge. You know. And when you say something triathlon-based, I'm imagining this is not just going to be a triathlon. Of no. The types that someone would sign up for and, no. and compete with other people. This is going to be something. It's be a, it'll be a solo unsupported thing. The swimming is going to be a fair bit of swimming. So that will need to be supported. But it's a couple of thousand miles of riding and couple of countries to run across and um, a bit of swimming and a bit of riding at the end. Sounds epic. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. But it's it's what I want to do. It's what I can do. It's not what you can't do. All good things do have to come to an end. And I think that's a great way to finish it. Thank you. Uh, Tim, I thank you so much for, for your time. No worries. To talk about this. Pleasure. Especially considering that the journey was actually only uh, a little over a month away now and it's yeah. it's still time that you're decompressing and it is it and is. that will continue but i i wish you well in in whatever you're going to do next which i will excitedly follow it's going to be great i can't wait stay training stay fit yeah thank you tim thanks tom